0: We continue in our sermon series this morning in the book of James. So let's have God's Word open us up to James chapter 4. And we'll be going from verse 13 to verse 17. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. Now when you're there, I'll ask that you rise for the reading of God's Word. Again, we are in James, the fourth chapter. We will begin... With verse 13. This is the word of the Lord. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God morning.
1: Uh, Last week, we looked at the following question asked by James in today's passage, what is your life? What is your life? We saw that to this question, there are two extreme answers. Uh, The first is the overly romanticized, the idealized answer that answers, what is life? Well, life is potential. Life is perfect, and life ought to be pain-free. This is exemplified in the person that James quotes in verse 13, who says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now, this individual that James quotes, he isn't this... um, this amazing planner he isn't this go getter but we find that who is this man he's actually someone who is overly optimistic who has idealized and romanticized life that what he's thinking i can go to this town i can go to that town i can go today or tomorrow i can do whatever i want and no matter what happens i will make a profit i will be successful in life that is this man's outlook now to those who hold this view to those who expect all of life to go always according to plan, to those who have a sense of entitlement regarding the good things in life, to those with expectations and entitlement thinking, I'm supposed to be happy, I'm supposed to find love, I'm supposed to be successful, I'm supposed to be liked by many, and I'm supposed to do all of this with very modest effort and even less difficulty. What does James say? I know this view on life, this idealized, over-romanticized view of life, I know it sounds um, foolish and naive, but it actually is the controlling narrative on life today. And this is largely due to the influence of social media. Uh, You know, social media once used to be a reflection of our lives, but now it's the other way around. Now we reflect what we see on social media. The curated content of social media controls the expectations and the demands that this generation has on life. So social media is no longer a reflection of reality, but it actually defines reality now for most of us. It defines the expectations we have. But what does James say to this view? For those who think, you know what, life is supposed to be great, I'm entitled to be happy. I'm supposed to be successful. What does James say? What does he say? He says, you are missed you are a mist here today, gone tomorrow. He doesn't say you're special, you deserve it, you can accomplish anything you put your mind to. No, he says you are a mist here today, gone tomorrow. Our lives are actually not unique. We all live the same life that's characterized by brevity and insignificance. That's who we are. And James says, how foolish are we expecting everything to go according to plan when we don't even know what tomorrow will bring? This is what he says. We don't even know what tomorrow will bring, but we're making all of these plans with the expectation that we are going to make a profit, with the expectation that success will meet us there. How foolish are we? So last week, we pushed back against this narrative, and we saw that life according to the gospel is not defined by perfection, but by redemption. You see, the gospel tells us that what we were really entitled to, what we really deserved, the wrath of God and the judgment of God was laid upon His Son, and in His place, we received by grace something far greater, something far greater than the perfectly curated life here on earth. That in Christ, we received an eternal Father, an eternal home, an eternal inheritance, an eternal community. And we received all of these things through not a perfect life or by a perfect life, but through a perfect Redeemer. Today, as I promised, we're going to examine the other end of the spectrum. If some people say life is everything, the other extreme is to say, life is nothing. Ernest Hemingway on Life said this, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. Or maybe a more recent, uh, something a bit more uh, presently relevant, uh, joy in the movie, everything, everywhere, all at once. When she talks about her life, she says, nothing matters. And if nothing matters, then all the pain and guilt you feel for making nothing of your life, it goes away, sucked into a bagel. See, this is the question for us today. If life is really characterized by brevity and insignificance, do we then go on just living as nihilists? Does the fleeting nature of life cause us to simply throw up our hands and say, you know what, it doesn't matter anyway? And to that... James says, no. Look at what he says in verses 14 to 15. He says, what is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. So he acknowledges our brevity. But he says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. For James, the transitory nature of not of life doesn't lead us into despair and meaninglessness, but rather, it leads to greater clarity and focus. See, there's a familiar plot uh, that the writers, um, that writers of sitcoms, movies, and novels often employ, and this uh, familiar plot uh, goes something along these lines. Uh, some character in the story realizes that he or she only has a few days or months or years or hours to live. And what that person does is after they come to that realization, they start determining what is important and what to do with the remainder of their time. Um, one sitcom or one, one, um, um, one show, uh, The Simpsons actually had this episode as well. Uh, when Homer ate something bad at a sushi, uh, a Japanese restaurant. He found out he only had 24 hours to live, and so what does he do? He has a man-to-man talk with Bart, something that he's never done before. He sits down and he listens to Lisa play the saxophone. He makes a video of himself so that his wife can see it later on when he dies. He reconciles with his father, Abe, and he hurries home after doing a lot of other things. He hurries home in time to say goodbye to his children to snuggle with his wife, Marge. And the moral of the story, or the the takeaway from all of these stories uh, of this similar plot is this. Coming to grips with the brevity of life brings greater clarity and focus. Matthew Kelly, in Resisting Happiness, he writes this, knowing that death is not far off brings remarkable clarity. After that news, there is no middle ground. Something is either very important or not important at all. Friends, if we are really a myth that's here today and gone tomorrow, shouldn't we be asking ourselves the most important question in life, and that's this, what? What? What is the reason for my existence? What is the reason for God giving me the life that I have? What's the reason for God placing me in my present circumstance with this disease, with my gifts, with this hardship, with this prosperity? What is the reason? Simply put, James is saying, if life is really short, We should be asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Now, I assume up to this point, you're all tracking with me. Uh, Whether we like it or not, whether you, you want to agree, you know, whether you, even if you want to disagree, we all have to accept the fact that our lives are short. Also, we all have to agree that asking the question, what is my Creator's will for my life? These things are of great, great value. However, we're at the million dollar question now. And that is, what is God's will for your life? That's the question that we all ponder. That's the question that we want to know. What does God want me to do? I would wager to say that most of you here, you want to know God's will. And if you did, if you did discover it, that would make your life much easier. And you would at least attempt to live according to that. And so the question is, what is God's will? Now, before we get into the answer for this question, um, I want to just talk a little bit about the misuses and the abuses of the subject of God's will, because presently in Christianity today, um, in the evangelical church today, the subject of God's will is probably the most misunderstood and abused subjects, and I'm just going to point out three Okay. First, when we talk about the will of God, most of the time it's in reference to our decisions in life, right? What job should I take? What city should I live in? Should I marry this person? Should I marry that person? When should I retire? Should I serve in this ministry? Should I wear this dress? What is God's will? Should I buy this car? Black beans or pinto beans? Guac or no guac? What is God's will? When we talk about God's will exclusively in these terms, we are missing the mark. We are misunderstanding what God's will is when we start asking, what is God's will for me? Should I get this job or not? Should I move to this city or not? We're missing the mark when we speak of God's will exclusively in those terms. Second, God's will is um, often misunderstood when we consider it to be this hidden reality that's out there in the future, and the decisions that you make will either place you inside the will of God or outside the will of God. We often think, okay, what is God's will? If I make this choice, would I be in His will or outside of His will? And this mode of thinking is paralyzing because it neglects the fact that presently you and I are living in the will of God. You see, when we open up the possibility that a wrong choice would place us outside the will of God, we are misunderstanding the will of God. You and I are presently living in the will of God, okay? And so it's not as though you're outside of it and you have to make a decision to get inside. We're all living in God's will. Third, when people use the will of God to justify, support, or defend their decision, there's a high chance, there's a really, really high chance that they're abusing it. We cannot, we should not say, this is God's will before it happens. We can say, I think God is leading me in this way, or I feel convicted of this, but we should not use God's will as a shield for our decisions, and we should not throw God under the bus when we say this is God's will. A female friend once told me that um, this guy that she knew, uh, he sat her down and he told her, "Hey, I prayed about this, but I think it's God's will that we get married. When she shared this with me, I, I had two emotions. First, I laughed because I thought, "Oh my goodness." These guys would do anything, right? But secondly, I was I was angry, I was indignant because you cannot use God's will in that way. So I told that friend, "No, you can't say that's God's will." And you know how I was you know how I know I was right? Because I married that friend. Okay, so who's in God's will now, right? But what I'm trying to say is when we say, hey, this is God's will, you'll never hear me say, hey, when I'm leading the church or making a decision, you'll never hear me say, this is God's will. I will say something to the effect of, you know, there's a strong feeling or a conviction that God may be leading us this way, but I will never use God as a shield. We ought not to use God, His will, as a shield for our decisions. So then, what is God's will? Well, Let me explain. God's will when when the Bible speaks of God's will, uh, it refers to two things. First, the will of decree, God's will of decree, and second, God's will of desire. Now, let me just get into this very quickly. God's will of decree uh, refers to all that God has ordained and He brings to pass. And so, what we find in um, Matthew 10, it says this, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? You're not, one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are numbered. So Matthew 10 tells us that what God wills, what he decrees will come to pass. That God's will is over everything in this world, over all the, the animals of the earth, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, over every hair that's on your body, over every cell, and over everything that exists inside in your and with your life. That he has decreed these things, that he wills these things. The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us that God, He rules over heaven and earth and over all creatures. He rules over everything, every leaf and every blade of grass. He rules over the rain and the drought. He rules over fruitful and lean years. He rules over the food and drink, health and sickness. He rules over prosperity and poverty. All things, the Catechism teaches us, happens not by chance, but by His will. That's decreed will. But there's also something in the Bible called desired will. And desired will refers to what God desires for his people. We find this in 1 John 2, 15 to 17. He says this, Do not love the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. The will of God used here is not in reference to his decreed will, but his desired will. What does God desire for his people? What is his will for its people? His will for his people is that they will live according to His commandments. His desired will refers to how we as His people ought to live, not necessarily the decisions in life, but the way of life, the manner of life. So if my son one day comes up to me and asks, Dad, what shirt should I wear? Should I wear a red shirt or a blue shirt? I really want to do your will. I would tell him, I want you to wear a shirt. Just don't go outside naked. Wear a shirt. But my will for you is that when you wear any shirt and you go outside, my will, my desired will is that you be kind, understanding, and wise. That is my desired will for you. And so you see the difference between the decreed will and the desired will. The Decreed will one is immutable it's hidden it's known retrospectively it's never known prospectively we don't know god's decreed will until we have lived it out and nothing we do nothing we do can change or alter god's decreed will and nothing we do can place us outside of it or further inside of it that is the decreed will but the desired will of god that is not hidden that's revealed it's made clear. Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine, I think, speaks of this very clearly. It's where the two wills come together. Um, it writes, uh, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. The secret things, the decreed will belongs to the Lord of God. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know how God has decreed this world, but the things that are revealed, the desired will of God, they belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You see, when the Bible speaks of God's will, His desired will for His people, it isn't in reference necessarily to the decisions that we make in life, but it speaks of the manner of life, not what we should do, but how we should do it. And this is what James is talking about. Look at what he says in verse 17. He says, So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. When James says, listen, we ought to be asking, what is the will of God? He's not speaking about some hidden, hidden will that's out there, but he's stressing what we do know. What do we know? We know that we ought to love one another. We know that we ought to be faithful husband, wives, friends, family. What do we know? We know that he calls us to draw near to him. What do we know? We know that he calls us to rest and worship him. We know that he wants us to care for the widows and the orphans. These are the things we know. They are revealed. They are his desired will. And James says we ought to be asking, what is God's will? What is it revealed? Here it is. Whoever knows but does not do it, they sin. You see, this starts to make sense as we think about James's framework, his argument. If life really is a mist that's here today, gone tomorrow, what really matters? What really, really matters? Is it the job that we have? Does that really matter? If our life is so short, the job that we have, does that really, really matter? The city that we live in, even the person that we marry, I don't want to sound like a fatalist, but do these things, do these decisions that we are so anxious over, do these things really matter? From the perspective of the finitude of our lives and from the perspective of the glorious eternity to which God has called us to, what really matters? Is it what you do or is it how you do it? You know, Francis Chan um, uh, who's a, a pastor and preacher, he uh, has this really well-known illustration. Um, many years ago, he uh, brought out a rope, uh, really, really long rope onto uh, the stage, and he had this small portion of the rope colored in red, and he said this, this is what your life looks like. Your, this entire rope, this signifies your life, your, your life in eternity, and this red spot, this red area, It reflects your life here on earth. And he says this, listen, isn't it so stupid when we think about how we uh, think and we argue and we're anxious and we're so concerned about that little red portion and we think, you know what, if I make this decision here, this would affect my life here. If I become this or do this, then I would have a better life here. And he talks about how foolish that is in comparison to what? To all of eternity. Francis, he gets to the point that when we consider our lives through the perspective of the brevity of life here on earth and the eternal glory that He has called us to, how should we be living? You know what the will of God is? The Bible actually makes it really, really simple. First uh, Thessalonians four three says this: "This is the will of God." What is the will of God? Your sanctification. In other words, God's will for you in your life right now is to prepare you for glory, is to make you holy here on this short, brief world so that you and I would be conformed into His Son so that you and I would be made ready for glory. You see, His will for us in our life is is not detached from what He has done for us already in Jesus. The cross and resurrection of Jesus is where it begins, and from that point, the Lord, He wills to prepare us for that day when we will stand before Him face to face. That is His will, our sanctification. If you need something a bit more practical, Paul talks about it in 1 Thessalonians 5. He says this, You want to know what the will of God is? Rejoice always, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in all circumstances. This is God's will. Friends, we spend so much time agonizing over the potential paths, over the potential paths in life. What should I do? Should I do this or that? Should I take this job or that job? Should I major in this or that? What should I do? And you know what? God, He doesn't really care. He doesn't really care what path you take, what decisions you make in life, but what He really cares about is how and why. So whether you become a teacher or a doctor, what God cares about is the kind of teacher, the kind of doctor you are becoming. He doesn't care about where you live, but He cares about what goes inside the walls of your house. What is His will? His will is not the neighborhood that you choose to live in, but how you interact with the neighbors that are around you. This is um, Kevin the Young in his book, Just Do Something. He talks about the will of God. And he says it pretty bluntly. He says this. When we think about what the will of God is, he says, you know, it's pretty simple. And he says this. So, go marry someone. He says basically marry anyone, provided you're equally yoked and you actually like being with each other. He says, go get a job. Get any job, provided it's not wicked. Go live somewhere in something with somebody or nobody. And he says, put aside the passivity and the quest for complete fulfillment and the perfectionism and the preoccupation with the future. He says, let those things down. And for God's sake, start making some decisions in your life. Don't wait for the liver shiver. If you are seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, you will be in God's will. So go out and just do something. And he says, in the end, the matter is this. Live for God. Obey the scriptures. Think of others before yourselves. Be holy. Love Jesus. And as you do these things, do whatever else you like with whomever you like, wherever you like, and you will be walking in the will of God. See, Kevin the Young is saying, the will of God isn't something that we ought to be agonizing over, thinking, you know what, am I making the right choice? He's saying, no. Live your life, but live your life according to God's desired will for you. What is your life? We looked at two extremes in the past two weeks We looked at the overly romanticized, the wishful thinker who says, you know what, life is supposed to be easy, I expect, and I'm entitled to happiness. Life is supposed to be good. And then the other extreme, life is meaningless, it's nothing. You know, these two extremes are actually two sides of the same coin. Very similar to when you flip a coin, sometimes it lands head, sometimes you get tails. These two extremes are actually the two extremes that we go back and forth in. At one point in your life, you were probably enthusiastic. You were idealized. You said, you know what? I'm going to be successful. Life is going to be great. I'm entitled to happiness. People are supposed to like me. But when things go bad, you become what? A nihilist, an existentialist. You know what? Life is meaningless. All of this is just worth nothing. And we go back and forth, back and forth from these two poles. But James is giving us a different perspective. He's giving a a gospel-grounded perspective. That instead of flipping back from these two things, Life is everything to life is meaningless. From hedonism to nihilism, God is saying, James is saying what? Life is short. Therefore, do what God desires for you. Be grounded in the gospel truth that what He has done for you in Christ, He is now preparing you. He is carrying this out. He's completing this work. He's preparing you for glory. That is His will. Would you go off and do it? Two verses that I just want to share with you, uh, just in my personal study, as I was looking and questioning and asking myself these questions, "What is life?" Two verses um, really hit home to me. I know that when I do, uh, when I go over your homes, uh, I often look at um, you know the Bible verses that you have on your walls, um, framed. Um, and if you don't have one, I you know these are some really really good verses. But Proverbs seventeen twenty four says this, the discerning sets his face towards wisdom, but the eye of a fool are on the ends of the earth. What does it say? This is talking about the idealist, those with a romanticized view of life. The eyes of the fool, they're on the ends of the earth. They're thinking, you know what, this thing is gonna be, things are going to be great. All my boats are going to come in. Life is going to be great. My future is great. And, and the wisdom teacher says this, the wise, the discerning, they set their face towards wisdom. The eyes of the fool are at the ends of the earth. The wise looks at the present, the situation that they are in now, and they seek to be discerning. They seek to do the will of God. They're not looking into some five, ten-year plan, dreaming up all of these dreams, castles in sand. No, the wise, the discerning, they see the present, and they try to be faithful and wise today. Also, Proverbs 90, 21. So if life is short, the psalmist says this, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. If life is short, does that mean we can do anything and whatever we want? Does it mean that life is just meaningless and without purpose? No, he says, teach us to number our days so we can live wisely for you. Friends, we're all thinking, questioning, what is the will of God for my life? God's will is your sanctification to prepare you in this very, very short world for what He is doing and what He has done in Christ for eternity. Would you join me in prayer at this time? Uh, What is God's will for your life? Well, it's not some hidden, concealed future that's out there and you have to figure it out. It's not a jigsaw puzzle. It's not a maze that you have to tread into the right path. That's not God's will. God's will is that your life would be so grounded in the gospel. That as you look upon this world that you have, the decisions that you make here on this world, that your question is not, what am I going to do? But it's, how am I going to live? God's will is quite simple it's to rejoice always, pray continuously, and give thanks in all circumstances. God's will is for you and I to be conformed into the likeness of Christ. God's will is to prepare us for eternal glory. Is that what you are pursuing? Is that the answer that satisfies your itch? Does that satiate your appetite to discover God's will? Would you take a few moments at this time? Please, consider the present circumstance God has placed you in. Whether it's poverty or prosperity, whether it's want or fulfillment, whether it's sickness or health, whatever situation and context the Lord has placed you in, whether it's singleness or a married life. Would you not ask the question, so what do you want me to do now? But would you ask, how can I be faithful? How can I live out the gospel? How can the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ continue to shape, guide, and direct the how of my life? Would you take a few minutes to reflect and pray? Let's pray.